Well, good morning, church family. And it is so good to be together here. I really hope that all of us have had a pleasant and happy Thanksgiving weekend. And as you've heard and as you can see, uh, we are starting a season in the church calendar called Advent. Advent. For the past 1,700 years, the Christian church has celebrated the birth of Jesus in a season called Advent. So sometime around 1,700 years ago, think about that for a minute. Sometime around 1,700 years ago, we know, as far as history is concerned, that Christian churches all over the world began celebrating, and it was documented as early as 1,700 years ago, the birth of Jesus in Advent. Advent, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, and that means arrival, arrival. And there's a deliberate double meaning in arrival. So on the one hand, Advent looks back to the birth of Jesus. Uh, his arrival in Bethlehem. So, listen to me now. The Bible does not teach that Jesus became God. The Bible teaches, rather, that God the Son put on human flesh. And He became human. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Advent celebrates the miracle of God stepping in to human history to seek and save the lost. Advent looks back to the birth of Jesus. And, on the other hand, Advent looks to the future. And it is that future that we heard in the reading of our Advent. This morning, a future which the Bible calls the day of the Lord. It is the day when at his arrival, Jesus will exercise his royal reign over all of the earth. And every tongue and every tribe and every nation will acknowledge Jesus as Lord of all. Above the earth, on the earth, below the earth. Everywhere, it will be a visible, historical, time-space event, and it will be permanent. On that day, the Lord's glory and power will be evident worldwide. And on that day, our redemption will be complete. Can you imagine such a world? A world flooded with the peace of God. A world where armies and weapons of warfare are obsolete. A world free from tyranny, terrorism, injustice, greed, racism, gun violence. A world without depression or mental or emotional languishing. A world free from death and disease. A world of love. A world swelling with joy. A world of peace where families and neighborhoods and cities and nations are for one another. Are you with me? This is the hope of Advent. Now in the Bible, hope never means maybe. 
Rather, hope is certainty. Hope is about confidence and assurance. Hope rests on God's reliability. And on that hope, we act a certain way to show our hope in Him. So hope is the confident expectation of a guaranteed tomorrow that changes how I live today. That's biblical hope. And that's why in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, the Apostle Peter says, In view of Christ's advent, in view of this coming day, which we heard about in the reading of God's Word, in view of Christ's advent, what sort of people ought we to be? How ought we live our lives in view of this coming certain tomorrow? What's that look like? Well, interestingly enough, the answer is in Nehemiah chapter 10. You didn't think, you didn't think we were going to not study Nehemiah, did you? I haven't forgotten about it. So if you have your Bibles, meet me in Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. I've tagged today's message, Awaiting Advent by Walking in the Word. I want you to say that with me, please. Awaiting Advent by Walking in the Word. One more time. Awaiting Advent by Walking in the Word. Amen. So the book of Nehemiah is a link in the history of God's dealings with His elect people, Israel. And the book of Nehemiah tells how God kept Israel intact so that the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem would be a Jewish Messiah, a Hebrew Messiah, as God had promised Abraham I will make you into a great nation, and through you, all nations will be blessed. So God's plan is to work through Israel to bless the entire world. But as you know, Israel hasn't always cooperated. And as a result, God sent Israel, God sent Israel through Babylon into exile. And on their return, the nation has contracted significantly. I've said before, I'll say it again. Uh, Israel's land mass now is less than the size of Champaign County. And, and Israel's population is just a little over 42,000. Now, now, to compare, in uh, Solomon's day, the Levites, the Levites one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levite men uh, numbered a little over 38,000, just the men. So the nation has significantly contracted. That's what exile will do to you. Nehemiah is the story of how God used this contraction, how God used this remnant to rebuild the city of Jerusalem uh, so that the nation could be intact, so that the Messiah born 455 years later would be a Jewish Messiah. In Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6, we've seen how 
The city walls have been rebuilt. And, and the city walls have been rebuilt so that the community can be rebuilt. That's Nehemiah 7 through 13. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 10, go up one verse to Nehemiah 9 verse 38. Actually, some of your versions will say that Nehemiah 10.1 should begin at Nehemiah 9.38. Nehemiah 9.38 says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Because of all this. What's this? What's this? This refers to Nehemiah chapter 7 when the wall was finished. This refers to Nehemiah chapter 8, where Israel celebrated a Bible conference. In Nehemiah 8, the Bible was read and taught and explained and then reenacted. The, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is a Bible reenactment, a Bible history reenactment, a week-long festive camping experience of how God sustained their ancestors in the wilderness days. This refers to Nehemiah chapter 9, where Israel gathered to hear Ezra's expository prayer. Ezra prays the Bible in Nehemiah chapter 9. And we said last week, if you ever get the point in your life where you are just prayed out, you don't know what to pray, brothers and sisters, pray the Bible. Pray the scriptures. Ezra's prayer revealed God's great name, our great need, and it looked ahead to God's great plan. And that plan was to send the Messiah into the world on a search and rescue mission. And we are those to whom he came and for whom he came. And at the close of Ezra's prayer, come 938, because of all this, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So this sounds official, doesn't it? So Nehemiah chapter 10 is a signing ceremony of a written covenant in which Israel commits to God and God alone. That's, that's Nehemiah chapter 10. It's a signing ceremony of a written covenant between Israel to God. Now, in verses 1 through 28, you can see in chapter 10, uh, are the signatories. Uh, and the signatories consist of Israel's leaders. That's verses 1 to 27. And then in verses 28 are the rest of the people. So the entire nation participates in this signing ceremony. In other words, this is an informed decision. Look at verse 28. All who have knowledge and understanding. This is an informed decision to separate from and dedicate to. So, so these are consenting adults of sound mind and faculties entering into a formal corporate commitment and just what is that commitment it is a commitment to walk in the word verse 29 we join with our brothers to walk in God's law to walk in God's law and that only makes sense doesn't it 
after reading the Word, teaching the Word, explaining the Word, reenacting the Word through the Feast of Tabernacles, and then praying the Word, that's chapter 9, it's now time to live it. It's now time to walk in it. And so here's our big idea. As we await the advent of the King, walk in the Word of the King. There it is. As we await the advent of the king, walk in the word of the king. In other words, Israel commits themselves saying, we're not going to be like everybody else. We're not going to be like the surrounding cultures. We sang holy, holy, holy. God says, I want you to be holy, holy, holy. God wants holy hope to be verified by holy lives. And Israel was surrounded in every direction by idol-worshiping people groups who'd love nothing more than to persuade Israel to get on board or get on the right side of history. And God says no. And Israel says, God, we're going to commit ourselves to you. And, and so what they signed was, here it is, a quit-claim deed. Huh? A qu you know what a quit-claim deed is, don't you? It's used when a person is signing over all rights to property or possession that they once had a share in. And when they sign a quick claim deed, they're giving up whatever claim they had. They're surrendering their rights. So when you decide to follow Christ, you're signing over your house, your car, your bank accounts, your career, your marriage, your children, your future, anything else you once laid claim to. You, you have, see, you, see you, you're not accepting Jesus as your consultant. You're accepting him as your king. And he is the king over all. And you're denying yourself and, and signing this deed on your life. That's, that's the deal. You have no more rights and nothing can be withheld. There it is. Now, in verses 30 to 39, we see the specifics of Israel's quit-claim deed. And it consists of three parts. Time, money, and worship. Time, money, and worship. You know, let me interrupt myself by telling you a story about a pastor who got a note from a church member that said, I'm quitting your church, pastor. He said, I don't like your sermons. So the pastor was curious about that comment, so actually called the individual who was not expecting that call. And, and the pastor said, can you tell me what, what you mean by that? And the person said, well, yeah. Yeah, it's like when you preach, you're interfering with my life. <laughs> and the pastor said, well, that's kind of my job description. <laughs> but you see, you see, you see, we're, we're moving, we're moving away from, from, from being a fan of Jesus to being a follower of Jesus and that 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 looks like something 
And in Nehemiah 10, it looks like time, money, and worship. So, and, and, and that's actually an autobiography of your life when you think about it. Your calendar plus your checkbook plus your worship equals your life. That's your life story. So regarding time, Israel promises to observe the Sabbath. We, we promise that we will observe the, the, the Sabbath command to the Lord. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we're not going to buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. So, so the Sabbath was God's gift to Israel. And actually it was Israel's gift to the world. The, the Sabbath command, did you know, was unparalleled among the laws of the ancient Near East, which meant that the nations outside Israel ran at a 24-7 pace. They worked and worked and worked until they died, then someone else took their place. But God had taught Israel from Sinai in the Ten Commandments. I want you to rest one day in seven. One day in seven, you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to earn. You don't have to labor. You don't have to make anything. One day in seven, cease from your income-producing activity to show the world that, that, that the world won't fall apart when you stop working. And the Sabbath command in Israel's history applied to everyone, citizen, non-citizen, animals, everyone. Stores closed. Behind the Sabbath law was a spirit of hope that God will compensate us for lost labor by blessing us on the other six days. And, and you know, let me try to avoid uh, some, and we can talk about it in the fireside room afterwards if you want, but let me just try to answer that question right now. Pastor, are you saying that I have to keep the Sabbath? I'm saying, why wouldn't you want to? There is a gift, where's that tree? There it is. Usually it's over here. Well, there's, there's one there and there. <laughs> Never mind. Nobody can accuse me of micromanaging here at the stage. But, but <laughs> there, there, there's a gift underneath the tree that God wants us to open. Now, wh why wouldn't you want to open it? I mean, it's a gift. I mean, it's a gift. Jesus said the Sabbath is made for us. Not, not us for the Sabbath. And, and so, so here's the question. Is the present pace of your life sustainable? Is your hope such that the burden you're carrying is not yours to carry alone? One day in seven, enjoy God's gift. Because, because on that gift, see that gift is a marker. It's a sign that, that on the day of this second advent, we will all enter into an eternal Sabbath rest. I'm going to open that gift. I hope you do too. Start living that way now. Where you put your time is a sign of where you have your hope. And God wants our hope in Him. See? Oh, but there's more. Not just time. It's our money. Now, regarding money in these verses, um, within God's word, 
was an economic structure that provided relief. And in verse 31, we, so we talk about the Sabbath day, but in Israel's law, there was what was called the Sabbath year. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now write down Deuteronomy 15, Deuteronomy 15, and then write down Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25. So every seven years, the law of Moses canceled all debts between Hebrew brethren. So can you imagine living in a culture that did that? Relief from the backbreaking burden of crushing debt. God embedded generosity into Israel's culture. So, here, so here's a country where citizens can make a fresh start. And within the law, every seven years, uh, debts among the Hebrew brethren were canceled. And then farmland, that's Leviticus 25, had to lie fallow as an act of creation care. And why, so, so even the farm needs a break. And why? To show that God will take care of us. That's why. God's going to take care of us. So, so, uh, so, so time, so money, and then worship. That's verses 32 to 39. In those verses, you'll notice the repetition of the phrase, the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord. It's there nine times. God, God's people commit in writing to generously support the worship activities of God's house because that's where God's people will gather to sing and praise and hear the word. And yes, even the clergy need to tithe too. That's verse 38. That the Levites shall receive the tithes and they shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God. That's their tithe. It's the tithe of the tithes. Everyone plays a part of contributing generously to God's ministry so that the entire community will flourish. And nothing is too insignificant. Nothing. Uh, verse 34 refers to uh, wood. You see that? We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Now, originally, the Levites were not required to bring the wood, and yet that's what they're doing. Why? Well, because it's the year 455 B.C., Israel is regathering after exile. The nation is not what it used to be. And if the altar of the Lord is to function according to Moses' law, the altar needs wood. Who's going to bring the wood? Levite said, well, we'll, we'll get it. it. It's mundane. It's mundane. But it's needed, right? It's needed. And the chapter concludes with, we will not neglect the house of our God. There it is. Time, money, worship. The details of Israel's commitment to God. Now, right about now, some of you may be thinking, 
what in the world does this have to do with Advent, Pastor? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Well, let's go back to the big idea. While awaiting the advent of the king, walk in the word of the king. Why, though? Here's why, church family. Because hoping in God is the only path to lasting happiness. That's why. Someone put it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. All of us make a God out of whatever we take the most pleasure in. And these verses invite us to a rhythm of life, a rhythm of calendar, a rhythm of checkbook, a rhythm of worship, in a way that will make God our greatest treasure and God our greatest pleasure. So it's not a matter of pleasure or God. It's, it's pursuing God as our pleasure. And that's the big picture of Nehemiah 10. It's a picture of what true joy looks like on a corporate national level. True joy comes by obeying God who is the only path to lasting happiness. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. So then how ought we to live in light of that reality? Well, Nehemiah teaches God wants us to live according to his promised coming, not our personal preferences. When we decide to believe in Jesus without making a commitment to follow him, we become nothing more than fans. And Jesus doesn't need more fans. And we're all prone to fan mentality. Huh? We are. Fan mentality is when you think or do something because of your attraction to an individual or a brand or a style. I've always been a fan of the Minnesota Vikings. Not many of you said amen to that. I'm in bear country, I guess. Forgot that, didn't I? So why is someone from Tulsa, Oklahoma, a Minnesota Vikings fan? Oh, that's easy. Francis Tarkenton. Huh? Francis Tarkenton. Now, for those of you who weren't born <laughs> when he played, Francis Tarkenton was hands down the most electrifying quarterback of his day. He was. When he retired, Tarkenton had every major quarterback record. Scrambling Fran, that's what they called him, Scrambling Fran. He, he, he led the Vikings to three of their four Super Bowl appearances in the 1970s. Now, never mind that they didn't win any. But I never liked the Minnesota Vikings more than when Fran Tarkenton was a quarterback. I mean, it was kind of the classic NFL era. Ahmad Rashad, Larry Page, Carl Elder, Chuck Foreman, and, and Bud Grant was the kind of the stone-faced, stoic coach, you know. In other words, what I'm saying is that they were my team because of my preferences. Well, that's one thing for the NFL, Vikings or Bears. But when you apply a fan mentality to the church, it will undermine true Christian community. See, when there's a fan mentality, 
your church involvement depends on a personality or a pastoral skill or a music style or a political affinity. And when you join the church based on a fan mentality, you're going to leave when your preference is not satisfied. And here's the deal. The, the problem isn't one's personality or skill or music style. That's God's gifting to His church. The problem is placing our preference as the central concern because fan mentality frames the church in terms of what I like. A flock mentality frames the church in terms of what God says in His Word. A fan mentality frames the church in terms of personal choice. A flock mentality frames it in terms of calling. Fan mentality says, you choose the church with the most attractive personality or style or brand to you. A flock mentality says, submit to God's leading in the congregation. A flock mentality says, participate in the spiritual community of giving and receiving because you have gifts and abilities too. Yes, church is about choice, but it's about God's choice to call you into His church, not your choice to pick a church that suits you. My role as your pastor is not to draw you to me, but to point you to the true senior pastor, Jesus Christ, and to use the gifts that God has loaned us to encourage and build one another. Because ultimately the church isn't about how great any of us are, but how great our God is. Amen? And Israel's quit claim deed is a way of saying, Lord, we're not going to be fans, we're going to be followers. Committed followers. We mean business. And we're going to put it in writing. And if anybody ever says to you, it's just a piece of paper, you show them Nehemiah 10. Yes? Yes, it's a piece of paper. Yes, yes, a marriage license is a piece of paper. Yes, a driver's license is a piece of paper. Yes, a passport is a piece of paper. Yes, a birth certificate, a piece of paper. A contract, a mortgage, a university degree, an honorable discharge, a deed to a house, it's a piece of paper. But you and I both know it's more than a piece of paper. It's what the paper represents. And Nehemiah 10 is Israel's constitution that represents their total commitment to God. We're not going to be fans. We're going to be fully devoted followers. That's Nehemiah 10. Now before I sit down, let me just give you some application for us here. How do we apply this? Well, during this season of Advent, let me, let me offer uh, or invite you to, to take up four challenges, and I'll just put it this way. Worship full, spend less, give more, love all. Worship full. Worship full. The fastest growing religion in the world is neither Islam or Christianity, it's the dollar sign. It's the expanding belief system of radical consumerism. It promises transcendence and power and pleasure, even as it compels complete devotion. And many Christians think that they can love both God and money, and Advent says, not so fast. Advent 
calls us to re-examine our worship because you become like what you worship. And yes, Jesus is the right answer to the question, who ought we worship? But I mean, does our expenditures of time and money and energy testify to that of him? During Advent, we have an opportunity, an invitation to put our hope in a passing world or put our hope in the eternal future of God's glory in Christ. Worship full. Worship full. Worship full, spend less. Spend less. Christmas is a season of excess. And, it, it's, and it's difficult to, to, to walk against a culture who wants to eat, drink, and be merry like there's no tomorrow. But there is a tomorrow. There is a tomorrow. And, and, and beloved, spending less does not mean spending nothing. Spending less means planning and researching and cultivating relationships, pursuits. And, and those pursuits are more taxing than flipping through the latest catalog or binging online. Spending less means thoughtfully evaluating what and how we support with our spending. Worship full. Spend less. Give more. Give more. Are we willing, are we willing to rethink the way we use our wealth? Do we long to rediscover the beauty of true giving? The Judeo-Christian tradition offers clear direction about what we willingly offer back to God to use for His greater purposes. And the Hebrew Scriptures talk a great deal about giving the first fruits to God, and specifically the tithe, which is 10%. The New Testament just opens the floodgates and pushes us toward boundary-busting generosity. And reflecting on the meaning of God's gifts to us, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9-11, you will be made rich in every way so that your generosity will spill over in every direction. In other words, God wants to use His people as a raging river of grace to help others. Worship full, spend less, give more, and love all love all. What do I mean by that? Well, here's an example. Uh, so the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she was expecting the Christ child. Then Mary went to live with her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth offered Mary hospitality. Hospitality. A safe place from a gossipy village. So how might our love become realized via the act of hospitality? Romans 12, 13 says, seek to show hospitality. Uh, I'm not talking about um, anxious preparations to entertain. I'm just talking about simple hospitality. Come on in. Just come on in. Our, our, our homes are open. Our hearts are open. Our lives are open. So who in your life could never imagine being invited to your table? Who is that? If, so if the ancient practice of hospitality showed up in the Christmas story, why can't it show up in our story during Advent? Well, what might happen if you followed Romans 12, 13? 
seek to show hospitality. We, we live in such a, an uncivil world these days. Hospitality, hospitality may just be the one way to, 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 to melt resistant hearts. And when our homes are open, we make transparent to a watching world what Christ is doing with our families and our dynamics and our bodies. And, and let me put it this way. Who could you invite to your table who would be unable to repay the favor? You see. Well, those are four ways. Worshipful, spend less, give more, love all. As we, as we await the advent of the king, walk in the word of the king. Our church is a company of pilgrims on the way to the end of the world and the ends of the earth. And God cares about what kind of people we are who claim to be the people of God. And if our mission is to share good news, we need to be good news. And if we preach a gospel of transformation, we need to give evidence with our lives what that transformation looks like. And this year, God is so good, He has given us an opportunity to celebrate Advent in a way that attracts others to our hope in Christ. Worship full, spend less, give more, love all. Let us not neglect the house of God. Church family, in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, we are the house of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the hope the secure hope that is ours through Jesus. Thank you for choosing us, loving us, sending your Son to redeem us. And now, may your Son's Spirit be evident by the fruit of the Spirit in and through the people of God. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And the church said, Amen.